Hey, hey, friends, I'm Thea Charles, and you are listening to the Push or Pivot podcast. In this series, we discuss the path someone chooses when they are at a crossroads of their life. Do they push through the adversity, or do they stop, reassess, and pivot? In this episode, we spoke with Dr. Alice Kirby. She is a doctor of physical therapy, health consultant, somatic experiencing practitioner in training, and host of Beyond the Pink Cloud podcast. Dr. Alice is also a sober woman and an advocate for teaching sober and sober curious women tools to help regulate their nervous system. All right. Welcome. Welcome, Dr. Alice. I am so excited to have you today. You have such an amazing story. Just from reading about it, I was like, I need to hear more. So without much further ado, welcome, Dr. Alice. And I'd love if you could tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to connect and get to come on your show. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Um, yeah, so I'm Dr. Alice Kirby. I'm a doctor of physical therapy, and I'm also a somatic experiencing practitioner in training. Um, somatic experiencing is uh, works with the nervous system, and so it's a form of nervous system regulation, resiliency, and most of all, trauma healing. So I'm in my intermediate year of training for the three-year program, so I'll have one more year after this one for that. And I also have a pretty eclectic background, I think. I I traveled a lot in my 20s and I studied a lot of alternative healing methods. So I was in a massage school way up in the mountains in Northern California called the Heartwood Institute. And there I studied Chinese medicine and polarity therapy and meditation. And I used to go and do these 10-day Vipassana meditation retreats back during that time as well, where you'd go and sit in silence for 10 days. And, you know, I guess you you learn about yourself doing that. Uh Um, and sometimes now, like in my busy life, that sounds pretty heavenly <laughs> to just go and have 10 days of silence where you meditate and walk. Um, so I did a lot of these things in my 20s, like different alternative healing practices. I did a lot of traveling. I was a flight attendant for a while. Um, I always just really loved to travel. Uh-huh. And then, I don't, sorry, is this too much of a story? Oh, no. Should I? No, okay. Awesome. I didn't know. Okay, that. cool. Cool. Um, yeah. And so I was, I was a, like I said, a massage therapist and doing some holistic health um, type work. And I worked a lot with Western nutrition, a little bit of the Chinese medicine um, and the Chinese medical system, which works with like meridians. And um, I use something called the five point theory, which I don't know, it's, it's a different system of, but it's, it's been a really nice background. And then when I was about 30, I decided like, I really wanted to expand my scope of practice. And I had this bug in my head where I was like, I really want to be a doctor. Like, what's the best way that I can do that? So for a long time, I thought I wanted to be a DO, like a doctor of osteopathic medicine, which is um, almost the same as an MD, but you actually get more training. Um, But they tend to be a bit more like holistic practitioners. Mm -hmm. So I started down this road. I went to like community college, my local community college, because I figured it would be the cheapest option and took all the placement tests and I had this like algebra book that I got that was how to do algebra in 20 minutes a day. And um, so I started going through that every day so I could do these placement tests because I hadn't done any formal, you know, math in a really long time. Yeah. Um, But it was great. I did this two year school. I did really well. I had a 4.0. I I really enjoyed it. Like I liked all my humanities classes. I was on like a pre-med track. Mm -hmm. And I was working the whole time and like building my massage business. And so then I transferred to a four-year school to the American University in uh, Washington, D.C. 
and I got like scholarships and grants because I'd done so well, which was really neat. And so I transferred over there to this honors program and continued with pre-med education and um, somewhere like along, I was majoring in something called health promotion, which is a lot of like health sciences, health policy, how the mind works, like how do we actually get people to adopt behavior changes? So we learned a lot of different like models and theories of how do we get you know people to, to do these different behavior changes, which has been interesting because the work I do now works a lot with behavior change and creating new habits and how do we form new habits and have them actually last and stick. So I pull on some of that. Um, but I decided somewhere in that time period that I like Western medical school wasn't for me. That wasn't what I wanted to do. I took the MCAT and I just, I was doing my med school applications and I just like felt really strongly. That's not what I wanted to do. Uh-huh. Um, and that's one of, I had like a couple really defining moments in my life where I know like this isn't the thing or this is the thing, like where I really almost hear like an external or an internal voice. That's just mm-hmm. super clear. I wish I had more of that, honestly. Um, it's something I'd love to cultivate more. Cause when that happens, it's like, there's just no arguing with it. Cause you know, right. Um, and so that happened with med school. So I took a, I took some time just to think about like what, what track I wanted to pursue next. Uh-huh. And uh, I applied for this neuroscience PhD cause I always really liked brain science. Um, and that I realized I didn't want to be like in a research lab. I didn't want to work with rats or animal models. And that was kind of what this program was about. So Anyway, so I decided on PT and uh, that was a great fit for me because I was already working in a clinic. I was used to doing manual therapy. I liked that I was moving a lot. I wouldn't be like sitting in front of a computer Mm -hmm. um, the whole time. So I I started that application process and got into a PT school in Northern Virginia. That was a really good one and the one I wanted to go to because it's where I lived. So with all your schooling, I know when I was reading that a time in medical school was kind of like a pivotal moment for a change for you, like a crossroads. Um, can you speak a little bit more onto what, what was going on when you got into the PT school? Sure. Yeah. So it was, um, yeah, the whole application process for that was just super stressful. Um, and then PT school itself, I don't know, I don't know if people realize this and I do, I try to advocate for my profession quite a bit, even though I'm, I, I don't work full-time as a PT anymore, but I think there's a lot of misconceptions about what PTs do or the fact that we even have doctorates. I feel like sometimes right. people don't understand like why we have them or like, mm-hmm. did we just, is it just something fun they give us? And it's, right. um, it's a really intense, it's medical school, yeah. you know, for musculoskeletal medicine, but we have, you know, you have to learn about neuroscience and our, our neuroscience teacher there was this like tiny little lady, but she was like a gifted, she was an occupational therapist, but she was also a, like a PhD in neuroscience. And she was very like, we had to learn so much about the brain. I remember we had to go to our cadaver lab once, but she had all these cross sections of brains. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was the coolest. Like that's one yeah. of my fondest memories of school is to look at the brain from all these different uh, layers and levels and just like to really see like the human brain. I don't know, to me, it felt like this, and this doesn't really speak to what you ask, and I promise I'll get mm-hmm. to that. But but it was this, um, it was like a microcosm inside of a macrocosm. It was like a spiritual moment for me to to just be like, God, this is our brain. It's I don't know even how to describe it, but I I definitely have a feeling that comes with it of just great awe and respect. And um, so that was a really neat that experience. Really cool. I mean, I I yeah. also have as a background in science. Like I went to I was a pre med major as well. Oh, and awesome! Would have been like. 
amazing. Like anything yeah. did things that were, and then later on I worked in an organ transplant lab. So anytime oh, wow. you did things where you saw something and like to see what really is going on inside was just like amazing to me. So I totally understand what you're saying. I wish I could have seen the brain. <laughs> yeah, I know. Some I'm people jealous, like, that sounds gross, but yeah, it was, it was so cool. She had that hooked up for us. Um, so that was really neat. But then I remember I was, I, so this is when I started drinking a lot more. Um, and so part of my push or pivot really comes in around alcohol and alcohol abuse for me. Um, but like school was super intense and it was, you know, it was cool stuff like that. And I love the subject matter and I really love learning, but it was, you know, like 10 times harder and more information than undergrad. And I, I've always been like, I've always taken to school pretty well. So I haven't ever had to work like super, super hard, I guess. I mean, I'm a hard worker, but it's like, I do well in school. It's something yeah. that makes sense to me. Um, I guess I'm an academic type mind or something. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't mean that to sound conceited no, or anything. It's, conceited. Um, I, I also can relate to that as well, where school came, good. you know, came easily. And then when mm-hmm. things got harder, it's like, what? yeah yeah (laughs) kind of like your whole like your being and like how you think of yourself kind of changes at least that's how it was for me it was like what's going on definitely definitely because all of a sudden you're around a bunch of really smart people and people that maybe have better study habits and people that are more organized and I think it was those little things for me that were just like these constant stressors of how do I have my notes like organized really well and how do I you know get into these study groups and Mm -hmm. I was like 10 years older than most of my, most of my peers um, in that program. There were a couple other people in their thirties, but everybody was almost like in their twenties and maybe just out of college or maybe they'd taken a year off. So I felt sort of disconnected from my peers. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, you know, we made it through and I had friends in a study group and it was kind of working, but I was definitely drinking a lot to resolve some of the anxiety that I had. Mm-hmm. Um, and like on some levels, it was kind of normalized in this environment because we were a grad program. And so after we take exams, everyone would go to the bar and it was, you know, people again in their 20s that were kind of, we'd work really hard and then play really hard. And, mm-hmm. and that was, you know, kind of fun. And, uh, but in my last year, I think for me, that's when things really came to a head. I was in my last clinical rotation. We have to do like internships where you, um, it was like three months long, we had to do three of them. And then you don't get paid, but you have to show up and do a really good job and, and all this, you can graduate. And so my last one was just incredibly difficult for me. And it was this placement that I'd asked for. It was in this neuro rehab facility. You know, clearly I, I really like the brain. And so I liked neuro rehab and wanted to, to learn more about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was these 10 hour days and my, my clinical instructor is a brilliant, wonderful woman, but we didn't quite see things the same. And yeah. um, it was just really hard for me. And I think, I don't think it was anything really she did. I think maybe our personalities weren't the best meshed, but Mm -hmm. if I encountered someone like that now with how I am now, I'd be much more adaptable. But then I just felt like I was running into a wall and, and I had moved to, um, so it was in DC. I was in Northeast DC and not the best part of town, but it was kind of cute and kind of changing, but it was a lot of, um, you know, we had a lot of like drug addicts, a lot of homeless people in there, Mm -hmm. people with different neurological pathologies that would come to the center for rehab. Yeah. But I would get up and walk there every day and I wasn't sleeping. I would get maybe two to three hours of sleep at night because I had horrible um, insomnia and just Mm -hmm. horrible anxiety. Like I couldn't, I'm trying to like think how to describe it. It was like, I couldn't function outside of this cloud of like heavy, constricted, tight, like just super, 
stressed all the time. Like I was operating on this like really high vibratory level, mm-hmm. not a good, not a good one. Um, so I continued to try to self-medicate with alcohol. Like I would, there was a store like on my way home from this clinic, I would walk like mm-hmm. the, I think it was like a mile or two miles or something, but it was summer. So it was kind of nice to be out and walking. Yep. Um, but on the way home, I would stop at this liquor store and buy like a bottle of cheap white wine and put it in like this big cup and then drink that on my way home. And then, mm-hmm. you know, once I got home, I would either go out to this little bar that was at the street and drink more, or I would go buy more at another liquor store. Mm-hmm. And I was just kind of like loosey, like too loosey goosey. I was always around my neighborhood talking to mm-hmm. people. Um, one night I'd been out and we were, I was like drinking. I was probably, I think I was high, smoking weed. And then on, in the two block walk home from this bar mm-hmm. to my house where I lived, like I was essentially robbed, not like by gunpoint, but I was yeah. so not paying attention that people were like taking all of my things out of my purse. I had like $200 mm-hmm. cash. I think my passport was in there because I'd lost my license on some other mm-hmm. escapade. Right. I, and it was just, it was so stressful. Like this, so I didn't have ID. I didn't have my house keys. Like I ended up sleeping in this abandoned, like building like a construction site that night, like mm-hmm. with all these like homeless people. And I mean, thank God nothing happened to me, right. but it was like shit like that, like behavior that yeah. just is like, just stupid, you know, and there's no sense in it. Um, but that was, <clears throat> I, I say that and I share that story because that's kind of the level where my drinking was, where stuff like that was starting to happen more and more. And okay. I would constantly like lose things, have stuff stolen. Mm-hmm. Um, and alcohol was just always the thing I would look for to like, how do I get through the day? How do I feel better? And it was, I didn't really have any other great tools or resources. Um, you know, even though I had this vast education from when I was younger of like knowing how to meditate and knowing some of these alternate like healing methods, like Qigong that I'd learned with the study of Chinese medicine. Yeah. But it was like, I couldn't translate that to my current situation. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it was really tough. And I had a, at that rotation one day, I had a, a lady who was this, I think she had a diagnosis of schizophrenia and she'd had a, she'd had a stroke. So she had a limp, but she was kind of this like cool cat lady yeah. in the neighborhood. Uh-huh. And she was like, one day, you know, I'm at work and she's like, honey, let me talk to you for a second. And I was like, okay, what's up? And she's like, oh, do you drink? Cause it's coming out your pores. And I was like, oh fuck. Like this is, mm. I'm at work. Like this is my license and my career right. that I've spent all like a, a decade on. And I have a patient who's maybe not quite in her right mind. I mean, some days she was, and some days she wasn't like, and yeah. this isn't anything against schizophrenic. This is right. this one person person's presentation. Uh-huh. Um, but that was really like, I remember my blood just ran cold. Like I literally just felt a wave of cold go through my body. And I was like, fuck, like, mm-hmm. so, so um, this kind of just happened gradually over time or did it just like, how? Did yeah, it-, it did. And I think this happens a lot for alcoholics or for, mm-hmm. you know, people even that as I work a lot now with sober women, but I think even people that don't identify as alcoholics and maybe identify more as like a gray area drinker, they'll mm-hmm. start to see this progression of just how alcohol is showing up in their life a little bit more. And maybe it doesn't get as extreme as what happened with me. Maybe it's more extreme, you know, it's different mm-hmm. for everybody. And I don't think this thing of like, you have to hit a bottom to change. I think that's, we should really get rid of that vernacular. Um, some people do, but I, I wouldn't wish that on anyone. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that that progression is is kind of a is kind of what happens because it's a it's an addictive substance and it's a progressive disease. So, you know, maybe you start having a glass of wine at night, like after you have a baby. I work with a lot of women where this is kind of their story, mm-hmm. and then it becomes two glasses, and then it's a bottle, and then so you just it's like that slippery slope really where 
and that's how it was for me too. It was like, oh, alcohol's fun, and this is what I like do for fun. And then it's like, oh, I have friends that that's all we do is drink. Yeah. Um, and then when those friends are telling me like, hey, you drink too much, which is something that happened, then it was like, let me go seek out other friends or other people I can just go to the bar and be around. And mm-hmm. um, but it was like my life was sort of crumbling apart in different areas, and it was all yeah. like whether I saw it then or not, it was all related to this like overuse of alcohol. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think to, to speak to your question, it, it was sort of little by little, but at this point it was like little by little on a broader scale, yeah. you know, all the different pieces. Mm-hmm. Wow. How did you get through that? Um, God, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I, had, I had a baby duckling for a while. I think that oh, helped. Okay. Um, my sister had a farm and I had this like little disabled duckling that I would carry with me everywhere. And I would like yeah. put him in my bra or it was a girl. I called it a boy, yeah. but it was a girl. We found out later and like bike around DC and take uh-huh. it out to the bars. And, um, but it gave me something to like care for and mm. check in on. So I don't know if that actually helped me get through it, but I think it was helpful to have like a little furry buddy. Right. That I had to go take to the park and I was like trying to fix its hips because I had some kind of dysplasia and they couldn't walk. Um, But I don't, you know, I don't know really. Like when I think about all the tools and resources I have available to me now, I I would like, oh, I really wish I'd had that then because I think it was just sort of, oh, like grit almost of just knowing like I have to get through this. So how do I get through it? and it was just like, I ended up having to do another rotation. My okay. instructor from school was like, you got to get out of there. Like my last week there, she's like, just stuff kept happening. I wasn't meeting assignments on time. There was just thing after thing. And it was, you know, it, was, it just sucks. Cause you want to do a good job. And, um, mm-hmm. but she's, she told me, so I ended up having to do another clinical rotation. I took yeah. my board exams that summer. I did not pass those. So I had to like retake those. So I had to kind of recalibrate. Got it. Um, but I think what really helped too is after that rotation, I had planned some travel for the next three months. I thought I'd be done and have everything in place and I didn't, but, and I remember talking to this woman who was my representative from school and she's like, well, this needs to come first. And I'm like, I need this time. Like, cause mm-hmm. this is really what I need. And that was another one of those sort of very clear things where I'm like, look, I, of course I value my education and I want to make this work, but I have this time planned, like I need it. And so I took, you know, I was uh, in San Francisco for a couple of weeks. I was a nanny. Uh-huh. Um, my friend like usually nannied and then she was going to Brazil. So she's like, Hey, come here and you can house it for my friend and you can watch these babies for two weeks and make a little money and just get out of your zone and be in a great yeah. city. Um, and I think that really helped just caretaking mm-hmm. little babies for a couple of weeks. Yeah. Walking around San Francisco, I would just take all the babies out for walks into the park and, um, they would sleep in the carriage. I had a little app that played a music yeah. and, you know, and I was still drinking definitely, but it was like all, some of that pressure was able to melt away. Um, I did a backpacking trip in Hawaii with a friend and actually almost got really sick from alcohol poisoning on that trip, uh, oh. which is pretty scary. That was pretty scary because we were in the middle of nowhere and like I couldn't keep food down and I was like vomiting oh, and had diarrhea because I'd been drinking so much whiskey. Yeah, it's just oh, wow. dumb shit, you know, like yeah. sorry to curse. Um, but I think having that buffer of time, I actually met my partner in San Francisco during that time. So that was nice. I had like a new love and that kind of gave me I don't know. It just sort of bolstered me to be like, okay, I can get through the rest of this. Um, 
And my school was great at working with me and not just saying like, Hey, you failed, get out. They're like, let's give you another chance. Um, you've got to go through another four week of free work. Um, you're not going to be able to practice. And I'd already had a job lined up. So that was like stressful. But in hindsight, I realized what a gift that was that they worked with me really. And were like, take this time and come back and let's get everything done by the end of the year. Um, And I really want to just acknowledge you just for like listening to yourself and realizing that you needed that break so much. That's really amazing. And I'm just noticing in the similarities that it it nearly seems like when you had, when you had the duckling or when you had the children, like when you had things like bring you back to taking care of someone else and even finding Mm -hmm. that partner, it just seems like things kind of opened up for you from there. Yeah, definitely. It took some of the pressure off, I think, from being in this high, like performance type state. Um, Uh I think, yeah, having some of those softer softer things in life really help. It just helps create that balance. You know, I, I like, I think I'm a high achiever. I like performing. I like doing stuff. I like mm-hmm. projects. Um, but yeah, when it's just that and it's that with like, where it feels like someone's chasing you, I think mm-hmm. as much as you can build in time for the other, it, it just helps your system to like regulate a little bit more um, yeah. and have more of this like ebb and flow. Cause like as humans, we're not really meant to be in this constantly high stress state all the time. It's really dysfunctional for our nervous system, creates all kinds of health problems. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I work with and talk about now really, cause of having had this experience, I, I have the, like the, the felt experience of it as mm-hmm. well as, you know, the knowledge to talk about it and, and offer alternate techniques. Um, which is why I'm really passionate about working with, with sober and women. Yeah. And with, you- with, yeah, stress and anxiety for, the, for your clients to be able to know that you have not only are you talking about it in like a clinical sense that you're talking about it in a personal sense that you can relate. Yeah, I think it's important. Um, no, um, an aspect. Yeah, definitely. It just brings that level of like humanness into it, and that's why I'm really open with my story, and I don't ever worry about talking about you know alcoholism or or being sober because I think. A, I think it needs to be a more prevalent conversation. I think there's a lot of people that are still have a lot of shame maybe around their drinking or they're just mm-hmm. not sure what to do or, um, you know, maybe it's unclear and they don't know. I, I've heard from some women recently that, like, I don't think I have enough of a problem to stop, but it's it's more, I think, let's ask the question, like, is this, is it keeping you from living the life that you want, A, mm-hmm. and, or is it is it enhancing your life at all? And if you can answer those questions honestly, and it's it's not enhancing your life, and it's keeping you from doing things, then maybe cut it out and see how you feel. Right. Is that what you did? Uh, no, I really had a crash and burn. It was pretty bad. <laughs> it was pretty bad. And you hear that a lot um, from people. And again, I want to, <laughs> I would tell people like, you don't have to do that. And my version of crashing and burning is different than everyone else's. Right. But for me, my partner finally, a couple years later, and I had a job and got through all the school stuff. And, uh-huh. um, but I continued to drink and we had moved to the West Coast and we were having problems because he's like, I can't, he's not a big drinker. And he's like, I can't take you. I can't take this, you know, you're killing yourself with alcohol and I just couldn't stop. And that's the thing with addiction too, is it's not a willpower thing. It's like your brain gets changed or you, you really can't, like you wanted to, you want to stop. I really wanted to quit. And I didn't, I couldn't, like it was, it was so, um, it was all I would think about. Like I knew what time liquor stores in my neighborhood opened. I knew how far all of them were. I knew yeah, like when I could get little bottles at the liquor store were closed. I knew what time 7-Eleven opened. Like it was just crazy, like how obsessed with it I was. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, that behavior was continuing. And he finally was like, 
I can't do this anymore and left and we were living together. And so that was a really big, huge thing for me to have this person that I thought was like, just going to love me no matter what, who was finally like, I cannot deal with your, your drinking. I can't deal with the behaviors that come from it. Um, so that like really made me take pause. And I, um, I actually got, I got on a plane to Hawaii, like randomly. I remember I was talking with the friends and I'm like, I don't know what to do. And of course I was like drinking and, and, uh, and so I decided, but it was like a really, again, a clear thing, even through the haze of alcohol of like, just, just go for now, like go, like I used to live in Hawaii. And so I have this real nice kinship with the Island. It feels like home. I have friends there. So I just bought a plane ticket and went, um, and rented a van and stayed over there for three or four days and continued to drink, but continued to really feel also like I was so sad. I remember just crying by this river. Mm-hmm. by the Hanalei River. And like, you know, I think I had some big beer and I was trying to make myself eat. And I, you know, heartbreak's so horrible. Yes. Anytime. It's like one of the worst things I think we can go through as humans. And then heartbreak coupled with this like thing, this giant, what felt like this giant looming thing staring me in the face of, you can't keep living this way. And mm-hmm. um, I remember texting a friend of mine, one of my best friends, and was like, I think I'm going to die here. Like, I'm not suicidal, but I don't think I can come back from this. And that's really how I felt. And Wow. He's great. And he was my friend and he's like, you know, just pray and pray mm-hmm. for, te- you know, pray for some guidance. And he's like, you're going to be okay. Um, and he'd been sober for like a decade at that point. Um, so he was great. So I came back to San Diego and sort mm-hmm. of had a little bit of grounding. My partner and I were still trying to live in this house while we figured out what to do. And that was mm-hmm. rough. Um, but I think like three days later, I went to a 12 step meeting and it was, um, it was actually like a big conference for um, LGBTQ community. Okay. And <clears throat> I mean, I'm a straight woman, but I was, uh, my friend had told me a friend of his was speaking there. So I was like, okay, I'm just going to go listen. Mm-hmm. And it was such a nice, warm environment. Like everybody was super nice. I introduced myself. I was like, oh, I'm new. You know, I'd been sober maybe half a day at that point. Right. Um, but I listened to the guy's story, to the speaker's story. And mm-hmm like he was saying so many things that felt like my story. And I was like, Oh shit. Like I keep like four or five jobs too. So that if I call in sick to one, I'll have another job. And Mm. all of these things just resonated. And he, you know, he talked about his own bottom, which he was trying to like drown himself in the ocean one day. And it's, and and then he talked about what his life is like now. And he's this amazing guy doing wonderful things and volunteering has this great job. And I don't know, it just really struck me and resonated with me. And I was I had this understanding now that I could live a different life and that maybe yeah. this, you know, 12 step recovery program could help. So, um, yeah, so I went to a meeting the next day. I met people in my community. Um, I remember reading like pamphlets about what alcoholics are and I was like, Oh shit, that's me. Like, <laughs> and, and it was really like, it gave me hope, you know, and yeah. it also, it just helped me to see like, Oh, I'm not crazy. I'm just yeah. an alcoholic. Like, I'm not this horrible, horrible person. Like I'm not this, and Laura McCowan in her book, We Are the Luckiest, says it so beautifully where she says, you're not the most complicated person on earth. Like mm-hmm. maybe you just, this is just your thing that you got to yeah. work on and figure out how to, how to adapt it, you know, or change it right. so that it doesn't take over your whole life. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So that was like two and a half, two and three quarters years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And since then I started, um, yeah, it's great. It's the best life ever. It really is so much better. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I started the somatic experiencing work with a therapist, like right around that time. I think I saw her twice before I got sober and I was a mess. 
And then I came in and I was like, okay, I, I got into a recovery program. I'm, I'm going to quit drinking. And she was like, okay, great. And then she was doing this somatic experiencing work with me, which is a, a really a body-based therapy. So it's a lot about feeling and being present in your body and noticing sensations and mm-hmm. noticing what's actually happening in the present moment. And for me, that was so instrumental in staying sober because I realized that I could, I could feel good in my body. And like, I would have these moments of like clarity and goodness and be like, whoa, like, I don't ever want to give this up. It's basically like, I don't ever, it's not worth returning to a substance because I'm like, I can, I can like get to this place in myself if I just start, you know, noticing and practicing some of these techniques. Um, so that was really great support too. And it's again, why I went in to do the training and why I now work with sober women using a lot of these somatic techniques, because mm-hmm. I know again, from that experiential place of just how well they work and how well they can complement other kinds of recovery, whether it's 12 step or I don't know, there's a ton of stuff yeah. out there for, for people, which is really cool. Um, for people who want to quit drinking or who identify as alcoholics or who, you know, don't, whatever, right. they just maybe want to have a different relationship with alcohol. There's so many neat ways, um, for people to explore sobriety these days. It's not just like kind of the old school way, which is pretty cool. That is really cool. And I'm so happy that you're telling the story for the same reason that you heard that guy's story, you know, and that's like precisely why I even made this podcast is I just think it's so nice when you see someone and you can see yourself in them mm. and then see that it's possible. Anything is possible. I, I just really love, that's like what I love to hear so much is the possibilities on the other side. And yeah, that, you know, maybe if I just came across your profile somewhere, I'd be like, well, look at, look at Alice. She's a doctor. She's awesome. Like all this amazing stuff that is going on, but you don't know like the struggle or the things that shape that person to be who they are today and how you are able to to connect with your clients and to help mm-hmm. people feel good in their body. Like that's what a gift, what a really awesome gift. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you for offering a platform and for having me come on and, um, and share and, and talk about it. Oh, yeah, this, this is really, really cool. It was nice to read about it, but hearing you say it was like, I know I wasn't saying much. I was just like, Hey, <laughs> Listen, <laughs> this is really cool. <laughs> as long as it's not too boring for your listeners. Oh, no, not at all. Not at all. Um, if you could give somebody, I mean, we've gotten a lot of advice for you from you. But if you could give us a, like one piece of advice, one like piece of advice, what would that be? Um, I think the idea that you're never too old or it's never too late to make a change, you know, whether that's something like going back to school when you're 30 or something like seeking help for a behavior that's destroying you or, or anything or moving or trying a new career or writing a book. Like, I think you're just never too old or it's never too late. I think if you're, if you're saying that to yourself, maybe see what else you can say or what other questions could you ask yourself to shift that mindset? Cause that's just really not true. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can always start something new. And I think that's what keeps us young and that's what keeps our brains functioning as, as younger people really, yeah. um, is to try new things and, and to just, you know, just, if you have something you want to do, don't let age or time or anything like that restrict you. Um, yeah, yeah just, just like living in a growth mindset. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's, um, I think it does. It keeps you young. I think it keeps your, even from a neuroscience perspective, like I think it helps that dendritic branching mm-hmm. so that you're actually changing your brain in positive way when you're taking in new information and learning new things. Yeah, very true. <laughs> if someone um, wanted to contact you, how, how can we do that? 
Um, sure. So I'm pretty active on social media. My Instagram is uh, dr like doctor um, dr Alice Kirby, and then my last name is um, Kirby with an E, not an I. So it's K E R B Y. And then I'm on Facebook as Alice Kirby. I have a really cool Facebook group. It's called the Self Love Project: Changing Our Lives in 2020. Um, and I do like weekly meditations, or I'll have guests come in and do a meditation every Monday. And then Wednesday, I usually post some kind of a pertinent research article to things that they're interested in. Um, I had a self-love summit in there. So I had uh, five days of guest speakers who were at the top of their career fields come in and talk about how self-love helped them um, or how they use it. It was pretty neat. That was interesting. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So I do a lot of stuff in the group and there's always like education pieces and guided things or guests coming in to talk and it's just a nice community. So anyone's welcome to come join that. Um, And I just finished a new website like two days ago. Yeah. So that's, uh, Kirby method consulting.com. Okay. And yeah, you can reach me on there, but social media, I'm pretty active. I usually go on there. If not every day, then pretty close to it. it even when I try not to, I like going on there and talk, yeah. talking about stuff. Well, you know, in quarantine times, it's kind of nice too. <laughs> exactly. It's like other humans. Yes. People. <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness. So we'll definitely have to put your website on the show notes and um, thank you so, so much for being here. This, this was really awesome. And I'm sure a lot of people feel inspired. Oh, awesome. Thank you so much for having me, Thea. What did you take away from Dr. Alice Kirby's story? Are there changes that you'd like to make in your life? I'm Thea Charles, and I hope you gained insight from the story. If you'd like to learn more about the Push or Pivot podcast, visit us on Instagram at Push or Pivot or on the web at pusherpivot.com. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe and join me next time on the Push or Pivot podcast.